sins, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Lord, your word tells us that the ungodly suppress the truth and therefore cease to honor you as God or give thanks to you. And as we look back on this week, we've seen times in our life where we've fallen into that same mindset of not honoring you as our God and not giving you thanks for the good things you've given to us. We confess that this week we've not put your word first in our life or submitted to your lordship in every aspect of our life, in thought, in word, and in the desires of our actions. We've made our life more about others serving us rather than serving you and others. Lord, you've given us so much, yet despite all of the blessings poured out in us, we rarely consider to stop and give thanks and to recognize it all comes from your good and gracious hand. The good, the difficult, the mundane, the adventure, and even the challenge, they're all blessings from our Heavenly Father to grow us as children, and we've not been a thankful people that recognizes your goodness to us. We come to you, O great and loving Father, as we now forgive all those who have sinned against us and ask that in your mercy you would forgive us, cleanse us, and turn our hearts to you in Selah. Lord, your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So hear our prayer and confession, Lord, and grant us forgiveness and deliverance. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The ungodly suppress the truth, even though God made it evident to them. Instead of worshiping the creator, they chose to worship the creature. And this was us. But while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly, demonstrating his own love toward us, that while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. Through his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God because Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God for us. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of Yahweh as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And he made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had driven out before the sons of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. 
Wherefore Yahweh his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. For Pekah the son of Remaliah slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maasiah, the king's son, and Azrakam, the ruler of the house of Elkanah, the second to the king. And the sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters, and took also a great deal of spoil from them, and they brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of Yahweh was there, whose name was Oded, and he went out to meet the army which came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because Yahweh, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand, and you have slain them in a rage which has even reached heaven. And now you are purposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves. Surely do you not have transgressions of your own against Yahweh your God? Now therefore listen to me and return the captives whom you captured from your brothers, for the burning anger of Yahweh is against you. Then some of the heads of the sons of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Berechiah the son of Meshalamoth, Jezekiah the son of Shalem, and Amasa the son of Hadlai, arose against those who were coming from the battle and said to them, You must not bring the captives in here, for you are proposing to bring upon us guilt against Yahweh, adding to our sins and our guilt. For our guilt is great, so that his burning anger is against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the officers and all the assembly. Then the men who were designated by name arose, took the captives, and they clothed all their naked ones from the spoil. And they gave them clothes and sandals, fed them and gave them drink, anointed them with oil, led all their feeble ones on donkeys, and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brothers. Then they returned to Samaria. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And read verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. If you would please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 136. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before the ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father, 
Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Lord, the, uh, can't read here, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and with the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen? Amen. Bow with me in prayer. Father, now we rise into your presence at the throne of grace where mercy and grace can be obtained. And we come now to hear your word. We pray that you would speak to us. We are reminded by Jesus' own words, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. And so we pray this morning that you would consecrate us in your word as your people and by your word, we may grow into the likeness of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen. John chapter 17, John writes in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I, <clears throat> I, uh, man, can't read it. Uh, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
Well, let me just report this morning that in my home office, there still is an essence of skunk. And I have two witnesses to that. Grace has been in there, and Friday, Ethan was in there. And so you might want to separate yourself from him. And I say this to remind us because we return to Second Chronicles chapter 28. And uh, as I said, Ahaz is a skunk. He is one of the most awful, unfaithful kings of Judah. It's in Isaiah chapter 7 that he is asked through the prophet by God to ask for a sign as high as the heaven above or in the depths below, and he refuses to do such a thing. We have no indication that he thought much of Yahweh, his God, and he is his God. Instead, he sought out other gods, and he became quite perverse. And so God was uh, tired of Ahaz and the people of Judah because they had forsaken the Lord under Ahaz's direction. And so he sent an army against them from the Syrians, and the Syrians defeated him and carried many people captive back to Damascus. And he sent Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, and he defeated him and killed in one day 120,000 men of valor. In all the years, years of war in Vietnam, we lost approximately 60,000 men. In one day, it says, 120,000 men. Along with that, Pekka carried captive 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. So of the fighting army that died and those who remained, their wives and their children were carried off to Samaria. And they intended to enslave them as male and female slaves. Now mind you, this is Judah... And over here is Israel, two tribes here, ten tribes here, and they all share a common ancestry. They are the people of God. As Hyde has read to us this morning, it's stated right in the text. Israel, of course, rose out of Solomon's sin through the ignorance and bad counsel given to Rehoboam, the nation was split. And when Jeroboam took the ten tribes with him, he set up golden calves in the north and the south for the people to worship so that they would not go back to Jerusalem. And clearly, he meant something like what happened at, uh, at, at, at Mount Sinai when Moses was up in the mountain and this golden calf came out and it was said, here's the Lord your God in a violation of the second commandment. That's what Jeroboam was doing. 
leading the people astray. But, but Israel over here became a very, very, very idolatrous nation with Ahab and Jezebel and all those who followed. The problem is over here, here's Judah, and now we come to a section where we're not just seeing uh, little lapses and big lapses, but a total lapse in following after Yahweh God. And so we're, we're smack dab near the end of this book now, and we are seeing the prominent words that proceed through First and Second Chronicles, that is, the word unfaithful. It's a word that can be translated transgression as well. And, and Ahaz is very unfaithful, and not only that, he adds more to his unfaithfulness. But there's a very interesting factor here, and that is when these 200,000 people, that's a lot of people, are being carted off to Samaria, and when you take captives and you win battles in those days, and I suspect still in many parts of this world, you are not kind to your captives. Many of them walk that distance from the battlefield to Samaria naked, men and women. Many of them walk barefoot. Could you imagine walking such a distance with nothing on your feet? But a man, a prophet named Odid. Odid means restoration or return. And he comes and speaks to the men of Israel. And he says, God, because of their transgression, delivered them into your hands. And you have slain them with such a rage that it has reached to the heavens and now you propose to enslave them. Do you yourselves not have sins and guilt? And so these men consider it, and when these 200,000 are brought near to Samaria from the armed forces, uh, from the armed forces of Israel, they speak and they say, you cannot, you cannot take them into Samaria. You must return them. Because Yahweh, our God, has burning anger against us. And so, what happened? They were taken from outside Samaria to Jericho. And before they were taken, the naked people were clothed out of the spoil. And clothing and sandals were given to the 200,000 people. Their wounds were taken care of, and their feeble ones were put on donkeys, and they took them back down to their own country. Now, I want you to remember, we have two nations. Israel came about because of, actually because of Solomon's sin, but it was not a faithful nation, not from the get-go. Judah, of course, was the original two tribes, and uh, they were 
somewhat faithful. And all the way down to the end, they were somewhat faithful. And then they just fell away altogether and God took them captive. Over here in Judah, you have Orthodox Judaism. Over here in Israel, you have uh, syncretic Judaism, accepting God as one of the gods among the pantheon of gods that they decide to worship. And this is the kind of man over here that Judah, Ahaz, has become. He is looking for help, but he is certainly not looking to Yahweh God. And notice what happens. God has been merciful to him. Remember, Syria took captives away. Israel took captives away. A defeat of 120,000 men. And you would think, man, this guy's got to wake up and see this is what Yahweh God is doing to him. But he doesn't wake up. Instead, he goes off to Syria. I mean, Assyria, looking to Tiglath-Pileser. And what he does is he pays tribute to Tiglath-Pileser by taking the wealth out of the temple, the wealth out of the king's palace, and the wealth from the major princes in the country. And he gives it to Tiglath-Pileser, thinking he will help me, but Tiglath-Pileser does not help him and does not strengthen him. And so what does he do? Well, he decides, well, you know, those, those, uh, those gods of Syria, they defeated me, so now I will worship and call upon them so that they will help me defeat my enemies. Now, the story, there it is. I mean, if you want to say, okay, we understand why God's going to throw them out of the land. Just look at Ahaz and how he leads the people astray and what they do. That's, that's certainly one point of the chapter. But... The major point is picked up in the New Testament by its counterpart. Now, let me just pause, and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 10. Let me just pause and say this. All around this world, there is one worldwide, one holy, Catholic, which means universal, and apostolic church. In that Catholic and apostolic church, you find a few Baptists. That's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> you find some Baptists, you find some Lutherans, you find some Presbyterians, and uh, I shouldn't go too far down the list because somebody will get mad at me. <laughs> but you find Christians all around the world that are not of the tradition that you've grown up in, but they still are Christians. So, like Judah here and Israel here, all around this world, this holy, Catholic, and apostolic church were all brothers and sisters in Christ. And some of those brothers and sisters in Christ we have vehement differences with over all kinds of issues. Here you have Judah. Here you have Israel. Judah in its Orthodox Judaism compared to Israel with their syncretic Judaism, they have all kinds of differences. 
Yet here comes a prophet named Oded. His name means restoration, return. And God sends him, and he speaks to Israel. And what does Israel do? Israel takes their spoil. The people are part of the spoil. And they clothe them, give them sandals, they feed them, they give them drink. They're feeble ones that cannot walk. Mind you, if you're on a forced march and 200,000 people, a lot of people are going to fall away, fall out of the way, who are too weak to make the journey. They put them on beasts and they took them back home. Now, we have lots of traditions around the world that are truly believers in Christ. I'm going to mention the name of one person because he has helped me a lot, and some of you in this room will be upset that I mentioned his name. Sorry. His name is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright has done some extraordinary, not just him, but he's compiled it. He's written massive books on it. Some extraordinary thinking about the Gospels. And he has refocused the way we deal with parables. Well, I should say he's refocused me. Maybe he hasn't refocused you. Because I grew up at Dallas Seminary believing that a parable has lots of uh, incidental uh, facts in the parable that have nothing to do with its point. Instead, there's, it, it, it's, like, it's like, a, like a fable. It has one major point. N.T. Wright disputes that. And of course, it needs to be disputed. Another thing N.T. Wright has done with the parables is he has recognized that the parables are not just some nice little stories that have nothing to do with God's people's history. So that he looks at the Old Testament through parabolic literature. And when you do that, you notice something about the story of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to just talk about the Good Samaritan for a little bit. So if you would turn to John, oh, excuse me, John, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And uh, a lawyer comes to test Jesus. So a lawyer means a lawyer in the Old Testament law. doesn't mean a lawyer like we would think of a lawyer today. And he puts Jesus to, to the test and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the same thing happens later on in chapter 18. It's kind of like bookends with the same similar kind of question where the rich young ruler comes rushing up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what we've done with these two parables is we've looked at the law that's been stated in there and we look at it in a kind of reformational Protestant mentality where law is there to point out your sin, to drive you to justification by faith. But unfortunately, that is not how Jesus uses the parables. That's how we use them. 
Instead, one must recognize that you do not get inheritance by what you do. An inheritance is a gift. And so, this man who's coming is not suggesting, as he asks about the law or what to do, that one can earn his way to heaven. Now, that's not to say that people in uh, Jesus' day didn't think that way. Some of them surely did. We have Abraham for our father. So they thought just by their birth that qualified them to uh, be with God and avoid judgment. But this lawyer is asking, okay, I want to inherit eternal life. What, what must I do? And Jesus says to him, you know the law. How does it read to you? Well, he gives the two great commandments. One coming from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the other coming from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, you see it right. Do this and you shall live. Now at the beginning is the expression eternal life. And at the end of just this thing about the law is the word life. The word life in the expression eternal life and the word life at the end of Jesus says, do this and you shall live, is the same word. It's the word life. And so we take eternal and we think of eternal as that life that goes on and on. And that's true. That's a true statement. But it's... It's not there just to say that. It's there to talk about, and we spoke about this last week, it's there to talk about life of the age. So people are thinking there's going to be the Jewish age and then the Messianic age. Okay, what must I do to inherit life in the Messianic age? And Jesus says, okay, do this and you shall live. Now, you'll have to take that home and think about it. Don't try to shove it into the book of Romans. It's not like Romans. Romans is Romans. And, you know, we, we have the, the tome that's been written on this subject. It's called Justification by Faith the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, and the book is about this thick. N not really, it's 1,200 pages. And it ha one of its editors is D.A. Carson. It's a very, it's a very good book. But, but Luke and how Jesus is talking here is not about Romans. So do this and live. And so the man says to justify him, to justify himself. Now, notice he's going to ask, who's my neighbor? He doesn't even talk about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't, he doesn't ask about that. He's going to justify himself. And why is that? Why would you leave the seemingly the more important factor uh, about God and move on to from the highest thing down to people. And of course, we understand that because we can read 1 John. And 1 John says, if you don't love your brother, you can't love God. So 
here's this man saying, okay, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. And this story has an attachment to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Because in 2 Chronicles, the troops from the troops from uh, Judah leave from Jerusalem. They're captured. They go to Samaria, and they come back down to Jericho. So they make their way from Jerusalem to Jericho. In this story, a man's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. In this story, he falls among robbers. So the, Jew, the, the Judah army fell among robbers, and they were despoiled and captured and ill-used, just like this man. He comes down, and he's coming from Jerusalem, so you suppose that he's probably a Jewish person. He's on his way down to Jericho, and he is taken and beaten and left half dead when the robbers run away. So the stories are similar in that sense. And Jesus adds into his detail, okay, so by chance, the New American Standard says, now don't think of that as chance, as if there's some real thing called chance. There isn't such a thing. It, it's, a, it's a word that means along with this, this is what happened. That's what the word means. So along with this, guy who's laying in the ditch, wounded and half dead, comes a priest. And the priest walks down the road and he sees him and he passes by on the other side. And in a like manner, a Levite comes. He comes down the road and he sees the man and he passes by on the other side. Now, why? Jesus doesn't tell, but we could surmise this man is half dead. And if the priest touches this man when he's dead or he dies in his touch, then he's going to be unclean. And if the Levite touches him in his, when he's dying, he dies, he will be unclean. And then they'll have to go home and they'll have to go through the ritual of purification, which is going to take more than a week. So they cannot serve during that period of time. So that may be the logic of it. Nevertheless, of course, the ones that are entrusted with God's house and God's worship system are the very ones who are unwilling to follow the commandment that they teach to the people, love your neighbor as yourself. They pass by on the other side. And then along comes a Samaritan. Now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom in the Old Testament, Israel. And it fell to Assyria, and they were deported, and new people were brought in, and they became a mixed nation. And this nation then, as you come to the New Testament, is known as Samaritans. These people are known as Samaritans. And, of course, Jewish people, the Orthodox Jewish people, look at Samaritans with their spiritual noses looking down upon them. But here's the truth. The Levite and the priest are a picture of Judah, the Jewish people. The Samaritan is a picture, well, of Jewish people 
but now a mixed company, and the people who came out of the Old Testament, the ten tribes. So over here you have the acceptable people, over here you have the unacceptable people. And so you see a picture very similar to Second Chronicles chapter 28. So these wicked Israelite people, no question that they're wicked. A prophet comes to them and says, uh, you have your own transgressions against Yahweh, your God. You sure you want to do that? The Lord's anger is going to be hot and burning. They listen to the prophet, and what do they do? They show mercy. They are two groups of people who are brothers. And the Samaritan says, hey, I will show mercy to my Judean brother. I will bind up his wounds. I will pour in oil and wine. I will put him on his my donkey. And I will take him to the inn. So in this parable, generally speaking, we throw all those details out like the inn and the innkeeper as if they're just happenstance to make a good story so you can get to the one point that you're supposed to show mercy. Well, of course, that's a point. We are supposed to show mercy, and we're supposed to be a neighbor who shows mercy. But when we put it back in the context of Second Chronicles, we're talking about brothers coming together which is exactly what is prophesied in the prophets like Ezekiel, that the southern tribes and the northern tribes will be united. And of course, that happens in the new covenant. Thus, when you come to the book of Acts, and Jesus says you start at Jerusalem and you go to Judea, and then you go to Samaria, you're talking about fulfilling the prophecy where brothers are reunited in Christ. That's what Second Chronicles is giving us, just a brief glimpse amid all the horror, all the sin, all the unfaithfulness, all the idolatry. One group listens to a prophet of restoration and says, okay, it's time to be merciful. Did it last? No, it didn't last. But it's a picture in the Old Testament of what's going to happen in our times. And it does teach us something about unity, friends. Because all around the world we have this one Catholic, holy Catholic and apostolic church. Remember the word Catholic is not Roman Catholic, it's universal. There's one universal church. So if you're a Christian at a Presbyterian church, you're in the universal church. If you're a Christian at a Baptist church, you're in the universal church. If you're a Christian in an Assemblies of God, you're in the universal church. If you're a Christian in an Episcopal church, you're in the universal church. If you're a Christian in the... whatever. You see the point. 
So it's a picture of unification. Jesus prays this in his, what we call his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. I, I, don't, I don't pray for these alone, talking about the 11 disciples, but I, I'm praying for those who will believe because of their word. That's us. This prayer in John that I read from John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, are for you and me. And Jesus is praying that we will become perfect in unity. And we say, well, yeah, we're not, we're not quite that unified yet, but when Jesus comes back, we'll be unified. Friends, when Jesus comes back, there doesn't have to be a witness for unbelievers. They will be gone. John's prayer, Jesus' prayer in John, is for our time. I pray that like I'm in you and you're in me and they in us, they'll be unified that the world might know that you sent me. I pray that they'll be united in unity so that the world might know that just as you've loved me, you love them. Again, quote N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says, you know, you have uh, two things that are important for the church, and one is holiness. Holiness is very important. We all know that. And he says, and there's another thing that's clear in Scripture that's important for the church, and it's unity. Okay, so he says, churches that focus on holiness don't tend to be in unity with other people. Churches that focus on unity, and you can see this, if you want to be really unified, you've got to give up all the truth so that everybody can move in. People that don't focus on, that focus on unity aren't focused on holiness. That's a true statement. So it's a, it's a, a tricky wicket, as they say. We need to be worried about holiness, sanctify them in the word. The word is truth. And we need to be focused on unity. So, this Samaritan, this guy from the people group that's unacceptable to Orthodox Judaism, he picks up the guy who's laying in the road, beaten, half dead, and he binds up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. I don't know exactly how that works. I don't know that I'd want wine poured on my wounds, but fortunately we have drugs today. And, and uh, he, he takes him on his donkey, just as the Samaritan put the feeble ones on the beasts. And they took them on the beast down to Jericho, which is a picture of re-entering the land with, well, life. But this guy takes him to the inn. And he takes care of him for a day, and then he gives the guy two denarii and says, you take care of him until I return. And if you spend more, I will pay you. Now, does that have anything to do with the parable? 
And the answer is, well, probably so. Can we discern it properly? That may be another question. But the word in and innkeeper, as you can imagine in Greek, they, they're, they're the same root, they just have a little different ending on each of them. And it is the combination of two words. It's the word to welcome and the word for all. This inn is a place where all are welcome. This innkeeper is the man who welcomes them. Does that mean anything? I think so. I think so. Where is unity going to take place? Well, Jesus prays for it. It takes place in the church. How does it take place? It takes place for brothers and sisters in Christ showing mercy to one another. Not based on, do you believe exactly what I believe? It's not based on your view of baptism. It's not based on your view of the millennium. Anybody who trusts Christ, they're in. And we're unified so much so that we show mercy to one another. And when the world sees that, how we take care of our own, that's what Jesus is talking about. Here we are. We're in Christ, which means I'm in you, you're in me. We're in Christ as Christ is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. So much so that we show mercy to one another. Mercy, uh, I was uh, asking my girlfriend on the way into town, Alexa, define pity. You know, because people say, I don't want your pity. But pity is what stirs mercy. Pity is what stirs compassion. You see somebody in need and you take pity on them. You show them mercy compassion and you don't have a doctrinal statement you got to fill this out I can't show you mercy till I know if you agree with me I can't spend money on you till I know if you agree with me because how are they gonna know about Christ well because you show mercy so 2nd Chronicles chapter 28 Ahaz rejects God's mercy it's shown to him. Here's this man who's had incredible defeats in his, his country, and people are being carted away. And then they're brought back, and he still will not turn to the Lord. But it is the Old Testament preparation for the New Testament parable that we are called to show mercy. Well, we didn't read it. Uh, our time's almost gone, but down at the end of the chapter then is a story that is attached about Martha and Mary because they're traveling along and Jesus comes into a certain village and he goes to the house of Martha 
and uh, Martha is getting preparations. There's going to be a crowd to see Jesus, and there's going to be food and all that good stuff. But, but Mary is uh, listening to the word of the Lord seated at his feet, and Martha comes and complains. Don't you see all, that she's left all the serving to me? So tell her to come and help. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about and bothered by so many things, but really only a few matter. That is one. And this portion will not be taken from Mary. The word portion, well, it's a word that goes along with inherit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It goes along with that word inheritance. If you are an heir, you get a part. You have a portion. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary's, well, in the inn. Mary's at church. Mary's hearing the word of the Lord. Martha, it's not going to be taken from her. Well, you know, we like to be independent, self-sufficient people who need no one's help. And we can live under that guise for a while, but eventually, you know, all of us are going to need help. You know, we grow old and things don't work the same. We all are going to need help. Or the Lord brings some disaster into our lives and we need help. We need people who say, hey, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. I will come alongside and I will help you. This is what unifies the church. Well, as you, I don't know if you've thought much about it. I'm sure you don't think about me much at all unless it's awful thoughts. But if you've thought about it, I'm a pretty dependent person. Didn't used to be as dependent as I am now, but I'm totally dependent. You can find me in one of two places. I'm at home in my rocking chair, or I'm at church in my office. And Grace is free as a bird. She either takes me home or takes me to the church. She always knows where I am. I never know where she is. No, I'm teasing. I'm dependent. And when you're dependent, like your kids, they need your pity, your compassion, your mercy. And I'm sure all of us realize, you know, yeah, I, I'm dependent in some senses. And all of us have, have been the beneficiary of acts of mercy. I, I, don't, I don't know why it is, but when, when I sit in my chair on Sunday morning, well, it's really Saturday evening through Sunday morning, when I sit there, I don't know what it is. Stuff just starts popping into my head. You know, stuff I haven't thought about in years. It just... Because I'm thinking about the sermon, I'm just trying to relate uh, the sermon, the Word of God to life, and how does that all work out? And it just popped in my head. When I was in college, I was, uh, I was working at a camp up in the Northwest, and uh, amazingly enough, you know, I, could, I, could, uh, I didn't need somebody to walk me around. I couldn't see very well, but I could walk around. And I was a counselor at a camp all, two summers in a row, 
And, uh, you know, you, we had 200 kids each camp. And so I had eight or ten boys that I'm supposed to watch out for, and I cannot believe any parent trusted me with them. But they did. Well, uh, on, on the weekend, on Saturday, the kids would go home, and uh, then the whole crew of the camp would go do something together. And this particularly Saturday night, we went up into uh, a, a, a mountain overlooking the Columbia River, kind of a gorge area, and there was a walk and a lookout site, and, you know, and you're walking along, and there's just a nice big cliff dropping off there, and I'm getting worried that I'm going to fall off. I'm just, you know, walking behind somebody, but can't really see them because it's dark. You know what happened? This girl. I didn't say anything. She just stepped up next to me, grabbed me by the hand, and we walked up that mountain together. What do you call that? Mercy. I did kind of like it. The Good Samaritan is a story about putting Israel and Judah together. And the funny thing is, the person who shows mercy is the Samaritan. But of course, mercy is needed all the way around. And the inn, with the innkeeper, well, I'm sure that it must be the church, the symbol of the church, with Christ at its head. I should say, at her head. Because where do you go to find grace and mercy in time of need? Well, you go to the throne of grace. You go to Christ. You go to the church. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for our Savior who became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary for our salvation. And we thank you that he did show mercy to us. He took pity on us. He had compassion for us. He did something we were incapable of doing and that was taking care of our sin problem. And he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin at great cost to himself. And the parable in a certain fashion speaks of that and we're called to the same thing. Not just in speaking the gospel, surely we're called to that, but we're called to be merciful within the people of God so that the world might know that Jesus Christ came from your side and you have loved us just as you loved him. Help us to grow in our concern for the holy, catholic, and apostolic church as we also grow more concerned about the people right in our own midst that we become unified as your people. Knit us together in unity. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.